Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 48, the book of Revelation, chapter 21, continued. In our previous lesson, which was meant as kind of a preface for our study of, of, of Revelation chapter 21, we spent a lot of our time looking at the nature and the characteristics of the original creation as described in Genesis. It's a creation that will exist throughout the millennial kingdom period of 1,000 years. Now, the reason for this revisit of the creation is because chapter 21 introduces us to the new earth and heaven. Heaven, in this case, indicating the physical universe, not the spiritual heaven where God lives. Thus, this recreation is distinctly different from the original creation, and we're going to be looking at those several differences. Now, let's first review some of the most significant characteristics of the original creation of Genesis. First is that the Genesis creation has the underlying governing dynamic of being created as a universe of opposites. This reality is reflected in rather self-evident ways that we all experience every day, but perhaps we don't think about it. But the universal creation structure of opposites is also made clear in the words of the Genesis creation account. For instance, God created light to separate it from darkness to give us day and night. He created dry land to separate it from the watery oceans. Opposites. Through our life experience, we learn the universal reality that where there is life, there is also death. Where there is evil, good will exist side by side. Because there is also up, there must be a down. Where there is a near, there must be a far. Because there's a big, there's always a little. Even atoms are made up of positive and negative charged particles. Opposites. Now second is that the original creation has been corrupted by sin. This corruption has infected not only humankind, but also everything that makes up the universe. Thus, God's ultimate plan of redemption is not only aimed at mankind, but rather his entire creation. Third, and connected with the second one, is that redemption inherently involves a new creation, or perhaps better stated, a re-creation. There is no such thing as redemption without re-creation. 
2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is united with the Messiah, he is a new creation. The old has passed. What has come is fresh and it's new. Fourth is that God created his creation in such a way as to give it certain freedoms that even involve the creation itself being able to create. This ability for creation to create has definite boundaries. It must obey the limits God has set because He uses this creative ability of His creation to bring about His will. Another freedom that God has given some of His creation is the freedom to choose. Humanity has the freedom to choose in both preference and morality. Many, perhaps most, animals have a measure of freedom of preference. However, the freedom of morality applies strictly to humans. By the freedom of morality, I mean the freedom for humans to choose to love God or not. And this is expressed by our willingness to trust Him and thereby agree to live by His laws and His commandments or not. Fifth, because of the fourth, then the universe is constantly undergoing change. It's not a static universe. Old stars use up their fuel, they burn out, they collapse and they explode. New stars are created from the vast, vast cosmic dust clouds. Our sun burns hotter and cooler in cycles. Oceans rise and fall, changing coastline geography. Rivers change course, carve out canyons, move soil around. Our Earth's crust is split into giant plates that forever move upon a molten core. They collide with one another, thus shoving up mountains, causing earthquakes, at times volcanoes to erupt, that in turn creates new land. Even plants are known to change, to adapt to an ever-changing environment. One other point we're going to move on. The Bible, at least for me, is frustratingly short on details about eternity. <laughs> and an eternity is something most believers are quite interested in. Now we get a fair amount of information about the Millennial Kingdom period in the final eight chapters of Ezekiel, especially as it concerns temple operations and from a couple of chapters in Revelation and a few statements by Christ in the Gospel accounts. But what happens at the end of history? What happens after the end times and then the succeeding thousand year reign of Christ? What happens is time comes to an end and we enter into the realm of eternity. Now while it's not comprehensive, we do get quite a bit of information about eternity in Revelation chapters 21 and 22. So if eternity is of interest to you, 
you do well to pay attention to the lessons of these final two chapters of the Holy Bible. Well, with that as a background, let's reread Revelation chapter 21. And we're going to go over a lot of scripture today, especially ancient prophetic scripture. So keep those Bibles handy. Revelation chapter 21. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it begins on page 1553. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the old heaven and the old earth had passed away and the sea was no longer there. Also, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne say, See, God's Shekinah is with mankind. He will live with them. They will be his people and he himself, God, with them will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. They will, there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning, crying, or pain because the old order has passed away. And then the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I'm making everything new. And also he said, Write, these words are true and trustworthy. And he said to me, It's done. I am the A and the Z, the beginning and the end. And to anyone who is thirsty, I myself will give water free of charge from the fountain of life. He who wins the victory will receive these things. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the untrustworthy, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those involved with the occult and with drugs, idol worshippers, and all liars... Their destiny is the lake burning with fire and sulfur, the second death. One of the seven angels, having the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, approached me. And he said, Come, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me off in the spirit to the top of a great high mountain, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. And it had the Shekinah of God so that its brilliance was like that of a priceless jewel, like a crystal clear diamond. It had a great high wall with twelve gates. And at the gates were twelve angels. And inscribed on the gates were the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. There were three gates to the east, three to the north, three gates to the south, three gates to the west. And the wall of the city was built on twelve foundation stones. And on these were the twelve names of the twelve emissaries of the Lamb. And the angel speaking with me had a gold measuring rod with which to measure the city and its gates and its walls. And the city is laid out in a square, its length equal to its width. And with his rod he measured the city at 1,500 miles with length, width, and height the same. He measured its wall at 216 feet by human standards of measurement, which the angel was using. The wall was made of diamond, the city of pure gold, resembling pure glass. The foundations of the city wall were decorated with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation stone was diamond, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth 
emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh turquoise, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The city's main street was pure gold, transparent as glass. I saw no temple in the city. For Adonai, God of heaven's armies, is its temple, as is the Lamb. The city has no need for the sun or the moon to shine on it because God Shekinah gives its light and its lamp is the Lamb. And the nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. Its gates will never close. They stay open all day because night will not exist there. And the honor and splendor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure may enter it nor anyone who does shameful things or lies. The only ones who may enter are those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. If there is an overriding theme to Revelation chapter 21, it has to be newness. It's emphasized in the phrase, for the old heaven and earth had passed away. One of the important questions that, when answered, shapes one's theology that concerns eternity is exactly what this newness amounts to and when exactly it happens. That is, to attain this newness, will the dross of sin merely be burned off in order to expose the pure metal of righteousness underneath it? Or will this be a a, a complete destruction of the old and a reconstruction of something entirely new? At what point in history will this happen? Or has it already happened? Interestingly, the bulk of the church fathers did not believe that the current earth and heavens would be entirely obliterated and replaced. But that whatever it amounted to was in the future. Acumenius of the late 900s AD says this in his commentary on the apocalypse. In his second letter, Peter speaks in a similar way. According to his promise, we wait for new heavens and a new earth. They do not say this as though heaven and earth and sea are destroyed and pass into non-existence and that other things come into being in their place. Rather, they mean that the present realities have cast off their corruption and become new, as though they were an old and dirty garment. Augustine, writing six centuries earlier, was not quite as certain as Ocumenius about the extent of the newness with the new heaven and he- new earth and heavens. In his ancient work, this is called the City of God, Augustine says, "Afterwards, this world as we see it will pass away, burned away." by terrestrial fires, just as the flood was caused by the overflowing of terrestrial waters. This conflagration will utterly burn away the corruptible characteristics proper to corruptible bodies as such. 
whereupon our substance will possess only those qualities that are consistent with bodies immortalized in this marvelous transformation. To this end, that the world remade into something better will become fit for people now remade, even in their bodies, into something better. Now we discussed last week how the culture and the era in which a person lives greatly colors their worldview. Therefore, it can and it will greatly affect how one reads the Bible. And in the the times of these church fathers that I quoted, and even in much earlier times, the discipline of science, as we know it, did not exist. They had no understanding of how the universe operated or of the nature of elements and atoms or, or much of anything about the actual substance of, uh, the, uh, about what existed above their heads or below their feet. Neither microscopes nor telescopes had yet been invented. So the idea of the earth and the universe being dissembled back to its smallest particles and then being reassembled into something else was just not a thought that they could have entertained. So they tended to liken Peter's claim of the current earth being melted and John's claim of a new heaven and earth being formed in its place to the earth being purged of evil by the, by, uh, the water like in Noah's flood. So Peter's statement in 2 Peter 3 that however the day of the Lord will come like a thief and on that day the heavens will disappear with a roar and the elements will melt and disintegrate and the earth and everything in it will be burned up. That was not taken by the early church fathers in a fully literal sense because they could not and their wildest imaginations understand how such a thing could be possible. Now interestingly, in our day, with our increasing knowledge of how the universe operates, the process of its formation, Peter's claim can and should be taken literally not only because it's God's word, but also because it's entirely feasible from a scientific standpoint. But even Peter was essentially building upon what Isaiah said seven centuries prior to him. So, for us in the 21st century, it's only an issue of whether we choose to believe it or not. History proves that most errors that prophecy teachers and students have made, whether in ancient or modern times, is by not taking the words of prophecies literally enough. And usually that is because in their era and in their culture, they could not take seriously how the literal nature of what was being foretold could possibly occur. This inability to accept what is written as the literal truth then leads to allegorizing and spiritualizing 
critical scriptural passages and so the intended meaning becomes obscured. And it gets replaced with incorrect man-made doctrines that can endure for centuries. So even when the disappearance of the present heavens and earth is plainly foretold, in Revelation chapter 20 verse 11, believing it was nearly incomprehensible to the ancients. Revelation 20.11 Next I saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence. No place was found for them. How can earth and the heavens flee from God's presence? And even more, how can no place be found for them? Only if they're destroyed and have essentially disappeared. Therefore, with all the scriptural evidence, and now even scientific evidence supporting Peter's startling claim, that the way that the heavens and earth will pass away is by intense heat, deconstructing everything back into their basic elements, then we must take what he and John are prophesying as factually true. The new heavens and earth are going to be new in its most complete sense. Fire and intense heat will be used to destroy the earth as opposed to purifying it as did the waters of Noah's flood. So the early church fathers got it wrong, but only because it was not yet time to understand the meaning of this prophesied recreation event more fully, as we can today. Well then to end chapter 21, verse 1, We read that the sea will no longer be there. This is interesting. What exactly does that mean? I mean, are we to understand that the oceans will no longer exist and that there will only be dry land? Will we become a green planet instead of a blue planet? Why would that be necessary? And as you can imagine, there are many suggestions put forth by Bible commentators, but rather than go through them all, and there's many of them, let's just get right to the bottom line. The term sea is used both literally and symbolically throughout the Bible. However, the first thing for us to realize is that to a Jew writing in the first century, the literal sea would only have been the Mediterranean Sea. That is, when a Jew spoke about the sea, it was understood that it was that enormous body of salt water that formed the western boundary of the Holy Land. When they were referring to other seas, such as the Red Sea, the Yamsuf, they would call it by name. However, there were other uses for the word sea as well. For Jews in John's day and for centuries earlier, the sea symbolized the restless, turbulent nature of the world. 
For the most part, the sea was seen as a powerful, dangerous force, fomenting evil and chaos. This belief, interestingly, came from the Torah, where we read the creation account. Because there we read in Genesis 1.1, and listen carefully to the words, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was unformed and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God hovered over the surface of the water. See, English masks the reason for why the Jews took this passage in the ominous way that they did. The Hebrew word used for darkness in this instance is choshek, choshek, which means darkness in a spiritual sense. That is, it is it, it, it's something that's obscured, usually by deception. So we find God hovering over this chaotic deep that was spiritually dark. And in the Bible, and in other Jewish writings, the sea also often represented the rebellious Gentile nations that constantly oppressed God's chosen people. In Revelation, the sea was the transportation highway for the world's greedy merchants and idolaters who reveled in the Babylon the Great world system. And it was out of this symbolic sea that the demonic sea beast would arise. And yet in another sense, the sea was a sort of nickname for that giant bronze water laver that sat just outside the door of the temple where priests would purify themselves before entering by washing with the living water that the laver held. So which of these meanings of the sea are we to assume is the proper interpretation of the statement that the sea was no longer there in this passage? I suggest they're all correct because they all stem from the same root. That is, not only is the Mediterranean Sea a literal body of salt water gone in John's vision of the new earth, and probably all the earth's oceans are gone as well, but so, as a result, symbolically, are all the evil, chaotic, and oppressive aspects of the world that the term sea has historically symbolized. Not only that, but because verse 22 explains that the new earth will have no temple in Jerusalem, then it fits there will be no more water labor that was nicknamed the sea for the purification of priests because there won't be a priesthood. Thus the sea will be gone in every respect. Now verse 2 explains that John observes the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Now this event was first foretold in another of Isaiah's prophecies. Notice that here the new Jerusalem is called the holy city. But historically 
Jerusalem has been anything but holy. Biblically, Jerusalem was constantly condemned by God's prophets for its idolatry and bloodshed and corruption and sin. It was regularly punished for it. So the old Jerusalem was, and especially is today, is in as much need of redemption as any other part of God's creation. Isaiah plays a, a key role in providing information and context throughout Revelation. But perhaps none greater than in the final two chapters. What he has to say is something we shouldn't bypass. So we're going to read the entire 52nd chapter of Isaiah today. You're going to immediately see that the subject is the eventual redemption of Jerusalem. So open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 52. Isaiah chapter 52. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it starts on page 520. Isaiah chapter 52, starting on page 520 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. Awake, awake, Zion. Clothe yourself with your strength. Dress in your splendid garments, Jerusalem, the holy city. For the uncircumcised and the unclean will enter you no more. Shake off the dust. Arise. Be enthroned, Jerusalem. Loosen the chains on your neck, captive daughter of Zion. For thus says Adonai, you were sold for nothing, and you will be redeemed without money. For thus says Adonai Elohim, Long ago my people went down to Egypt to live there as aliens, and Asher oppressed them for no reason. So now, what should I do here, asks Adonai, since my people were carried off for nothing? Their oppressors are howling, says Adonai, and my name is always being insulted daily. Therefore my people will know my name. Therefore on that day they will know that I, the one speaking, here I am. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, proclaiming shalom, bringing good news of good things, announcing salvation, and saying to Zion, Your God is king. Listen, your watchmen are raising their voices, shouting for joy together, for they will see before their own eyes Adonai returning to Zion. Break out into joy. Sing together, you ruins of Jerusalem. For Adonai has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. Adonai has bared his holy arm in the sight of every nation, and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. Leave. Leave. Get out of there. Don't touch anything unclean. Get out from inside it and be clean. You who carry Adonai's temple equipment. You need not leave in haste. You do not have to flee, for Adonai will go ahead of you. And the God of Israel will also be behind you. See how my servant will succeed. He will be raised up and exalted and highly honored, just as many were appalled at him because he was so disfigured that he didn't even seem human, simply no longer looked like a man. 
So now he'll startle many nations. Because of him, kings will be speechless. For they will see what they had not been told. And they will ponder things they had never heard. Notice that in the first verse, God calls Jerusalem the holy city. And it's because, he says, the uncircumcised and the unclean will enter you no more. Verse 9, and Isaiah says, 52 says, Break out into joy, sing together you ruins of Jerusalem. For Adonai has comforted his people, he has redeemed Jerusalem. And who brings about this redemption? Isaiah 52, 13-15 See how my servant will succeed. He'll be raised up and exalted and highly honored. And just as many were appalled at him because he was so disfigured that he didn't even seem human. Simply no longer look like a man. So now he will startle many nations. Because of him, kings will be speechless, for they will see what they had not been told. They will ponder things they had never heard. In retrospect, we now know that this servant of God is Yeshua, who is the agent of redemption for God's entire creation. So far in Revelation, God has redeemed, and thus hand in hand, recreated, the earth and the heavens. And he has redeemed and he has, he has recreated Jerusalem. Paul knew that the redemption of Jerusalem is less an event and more process. Something that has been in the works in heaven for a long time. And he speaks about it in Galatians 4, you can look that up. But the anonymous writer of the book of Hebrews also makes a poignant statement, statement about this heavenly new Jerusalem that I want you to hear. In Hebrews 12, 18 through 24. For you have not come to a tangible mountain, to an ignited fire, to darkness, to murk, to a whirlwind, to the sound of a shofar, to a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be given to them, for they couldn't bear what was being commanded them. Even if an animal touches the mountain, it is to be stoned to death. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am quaking with dread. On the contrary, you have come to Mount Zion, that is, the city of the living God, heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels in festive assembly, to a community of the firstborn whose names have been recorded in heaven, to a judge who is God of everyone, to spirits of righteous people who have been brought to the goal, to the mediator of a new covenant, Yeshua, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks better things than that of Abel. See, what we learn in the final two chapters of Revelation is that in the new earth and the new Jerusalem, God will not be hidden away in a temple with a physical barrier between he and his people that is meant to keep them away 
from His supreme holiness. A physical barrier that if crossed in prior times meant death for the violator, just like at Mount Sinai and with the temple in Jerusalem. As Hebrew 12, Hebrews 12 notes, at Mount Sinai, no human or animal could approach God and live, except for one, Moses. In the Jerusalem temple, no human or animal could approach God in the Holy of Holies and live, except for one, the high priest, and even then only one time per year. Yet because of Messiah Yeshua and the redemption that he has enabled, all barriers, physical and spiritual, between God and mankind will be gone with the new earth. We will have no fear in approaching the God of the universe because Yeshua's blood has more power to save and to redeem than the sacrifices of Abel. God will truly and completely be God with us, which has always been His goal. Now for the sake of clarity, when Jerusalem or New Jerusalem is spoken of, it's not representative of the city infrastructure per se, rather it's representative of the people who reside there. So just as it was not the infrastructure of the old Jerusalem that was condemned as sinful and idolatrous, rather it was the people, so it will be that with the new Jerusalem it is representative of the holy, pure, and redeemed people who are going to live within it. Now verse 3 says, that from God's throne in heaven a loud voice is heard that announces God's living presence with his people. Who's making that loud voice? Well, it's not God because the message is not in the first person. It might be the four living beings who surround and guard guard his throne, but we're not told. The complete Jewish Bible makes an error, I think, in saying that God's Shekinah will be with mankind. Rather, the Greek word used here is skinne. And skinne means tabernacle. So the statement is merely saying that God will be living on earth with mankind. In what form he's going to exist on the new earth, we're just not told. Now an interesting point about this verse that is worth exploring is where we read the words, they will be his Peoples. Most translations have it as they will be his people, singular. However, the Greek word is laoi, which is a plural. It means peoples. Other parts of the Old and New Testament speak of God's people, singular, but the Greek word for that is laos. So why the change here in Revelation 21? I think the reason may be that while in other parts of the Bible the term God's people is specifically referring to Israelites in the historical sense, that is, one distinct people group, here the point is many peoples, 
plural will be represented on the new earth and all will be considered as God's people. Or as we find it earlier in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, and they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals because you were slaughtered. At the cost of blood, you ransomed for God persons from every tribe, language, people, and nation. So racial, cultural, ethnic boundaries have been obliterated. Because through trust in Christ, all have access to redemption. Not just ethnic Israelites. This was a promise that was famously made to Abraham in Genesis 12, some 2,000 years before the Apostle John lived in Genesis 12.1. Now Adonai said to Avram, Get yourself out of your country, away from your kinsmen, and away from your father's house, and go to the land that I'll show you. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You are to be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, but I will curse anyone who curses you, and by you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So upon the advent of the new earth, the diversity of blessed people that God promised to Abraham finally comes about to its fullest. Well, next is verse 4. In fact, it's a verse spoken in nearly every funeral I've ever attended. It explains that the tears and pain and mourning from death will be gone because the old order of things has passed away. And with the new earth, there will be no more death. Nothing and no one will die, ever. Yet again, Isaiah speaks about the coming of this day. In Isaiah 25, verses 8 and 9, He will swallow up death forever. Adonai Elohim will wipe away the tears from every face. He will remove from all the earth the disgraces people suffer. For Adonai has spoken. On that day they will say, See, this is our God. We waited for him to save us. This is Adonai. We put our hope in him. We are full of joy, so glad that he saved us. So we read that the old order has been replaced with a new order. The old order seems to have two aspects to it. First, it is that aspect of order that God established the creation. An order that produced our universe of opposites and everything that comes with that. Second is that aspect of order that lays down how mankind and all living creatures are to relate to God. And that second aspect of the old order began the Garden of Eden with the fall of Adam and Eve and later it was made into a law code and put to writing on Mount Sinai with Moses. Both aspects of this old order are going to continue until the new earth and heavens are established. Now it's popular in the church to say that Christ abolished the old order, the order given to Moses. But even Christ himself told us exactly when that old order would be abolished. He said in Matthew 5.18 that not the tiniest bit of the Torah would pass away part of the old order until when? 
heaven and earth passes away, which is the beginning of the new order. So please notice, the old order did not pass away at the foot of the cross. Not Christ's first coming, nor even his return to inaugurate his thousand year reign abolishes the old order and replaces it with the new order. It only happens here in Revelation 21. It occurs after the end of the millennial kingdom upon the destruction of the old earth and the heavens and the recreation of a new earth and heavens. And significantly, it only happens after Christ has handed the kingdom back over to God the Father. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15, 21-25. For since death came through a man, also the resurrection of the dead has come through a man. For just as in connection with Adam all die, so in connection with the Messiah all will be made alive. But each in his own order. The Messiah is the first fruits, then those who belong to the Messiah at the time of his coming. Then the culmination when he hands over the kingdom of God to the Father. After having put an end to every rulership, yes, to every authority and power. For he has to rule until he puts all of his enemies under his feet. When this old order is replaced is a huge doctrinal issue in the church. So huge that many good Bible commentators have concluded that the final chapters of Revelation must have been given to us out of order. So they rearrange sections of these chapters so as to change the point in time at which this new order of things that we read about in Revelation 21 occurs. And this is done so that it upholds their personal and no doubt denominational doctrinal beliefs. I suggest that we accept what has been handed down to us as inspired writings just as they are and not attempt to modify them unless we should find earlier original manuscripts that show us something different. We're going to continue with Revelation 21 next week.